Blog Talk Radio. Moore Speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morris, Monday through Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as we continue this year with our abbreviated edition of the program. Um, we're not doing the full two hours as I prepare for the launching of the program at um, Unregular Radio and as I am conducting these excellent and really fun paid radio interviews at Unregular Radio which is in downtown Boston. If you'd like to join me there, by the way, feel free to email me for more information about that, Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, number four, at gmail.com. This is, of course, the Friday before the Monday, which is the uh, national observance of the the anniversary of the birth of the late, great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, to help us discuss the... uh, Life and the Legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We shall be joined by Dr. Alveda King, who is uh, Martin Luther King's niece and who is a a doctor in her own right. I want to learn a little bit about uh, Dr. King, uh, that being Dr. Alveda King uh, herself, her her own career. And we'll also talk about uh, the legacy of Martin Luther King from someone who knew him very well and uh, grew up knowing him and who is a a member of that great American family, the Kings, that very illustrious family. Um, uh, I think that uh, Alveda King gives, uh, we'll see, but I believe she gives some insight, uh, at least uh, based upon the press information that I received, um, on on the aspect of, uh, of Martin Luther King's career, and of course he was a complex figure. We can't know the whole story of, of his life, and a lot of information about Dr. King remains under wraps and will not be released for probably in our own lifetime. But nevertheless, I mean, there is an aspect to his belief system, maybe not necessarily how he conducted his personal affairs, but his belief system, let's put it that way, that was animated by Christian faith, that was animated by conservative values, He was a registered Republican, I understand, although I'm going to seek confirmation about that from Alveda King. And that his his preaching was completely imbued with uh, Christian biblical references. Um, You know, recently I had on this program um, a liberal talk show host, uh, that being David Pakman, and I'm not bringing this up to criticize David because he's a nice guy, and uh, I think that he's a, a good talk show host, but he pointed out to me that he felt it was inappropriate, and I think he was echoing a lot of views by, by so-called progressives, for public officials and for public figures of people of influence to cite the Bible and to cite their religious faith as the animating factor in their taking various positions in public life. Um, he even went so far as to suggest, at least in Congress and in, and in government, that this be outlawed. Um, he believes that it's illegal. He says that uh, he makes some vague reference to the Constitution banning people of religious faith from expressing their faith in public. 
and from openly uh, proclaiming that faith as being the uh, guide for their for their political positions. And uh, you know, I, I I probably should have pointed out to him at the time that um, I know that he's a major admirer of Reverend Martin Luther King, and that that was the essence of of Reverend King's entire movement, really. That uh, you know, it was totally animated by faith. It was completely animated by the idea that uh, that somehow that the the, the good Lord Almighty. Uh, was commanding, not just suggesting, but that was commanding that all men and all women uh, being created in his image and being created equal would have equal rights under the law. This isn't something that was made up by the progressives. This is a biblical concept. concept. This is something that Martin Luther King derived from the Bible, of which he was very well-versed and of which he quoted from quite liberally, I might add. So when we're taking a look at the legacy of the late great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, I think that we should examine that aspect of his personality. And uh, we will be joined, as I said shortly, probably in about five minutes, by Dr. Alveda King, who, again, is Martin Luther King's niece and who knew him well, and who has pointed this out, at least in the press information that I've received here, that Reverend King was, for example, a pro-life on abortion. He took, he took socially conservative positions. He was uh, quite true, at least in his public utterances, with, uh, with his Bible, and uh, was, made no bones over his belief that the Bible was what it guided him in his positions. So, you know, maybe that's an aspect of the legacy that uh, so-called progressives want to downplay. They would rather focus on their obsession with race, which, by the way, Reverend King said that he hoped that someday his four children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Wasn't that his dream? I believe it was. So... You know, rather than this this negative obsession with race, this idea, this paternalistic white man's burden concept that they seem to embrace, this this view that people who are of color are somehow in a perpetual state of victimhood, and that they need to have the great white administrator using the authoritarian power of the state to lift them up, that they can't do it themselves which is an awfully, as I say, paternalistic view of life. And it's a very negative view, by the way. It's a negative view of America, really. Um, that, that That's not what the Reverend King was about. That's not what the March on Washington was about in the summer of 1962. The March on Washington was all about African Americans simply who, who dressed for the part. They, they put on suit and tie and they put on their best clothes. And they were polite and respectful. Um, and they turned out in, in literally, I think it was probably at least a quarter of a million people uh, crowded the mall that day to hear the Reverend King deliver his magnificent speech, that they wanted to have equal opportunity, not equal outcome. Uh, you know, black people understood that they were just as able to achieve. And this might come as a shock to white liberals, but uh, that they were able to achieve on their own and had done so, 
and thanks to the Eisenhower administration, uh, had made major strides in areas of getting rid of Jim Crow. That's what this is about. You know, they talk about segregation. It was all about Jim Crow, the government having laws in place, state governments, federal government to a degree, local governments, having laws in place, big government, putting in laws that regulated who can go where and who couldn't. Talk about big government. They stood for getting rid of those sorts of laws. They stood for striking down Jim Crow laws and allowing people to achieve on their own. They weren't asking for the government to come in with a new series of laws, basically paying people not to work, which was what the, uh, ended up happening with uh, the Great Society movement of Lyndon B. Johnson. That's not what the, the March on Washington was about. That's not what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was about. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. understood the true meaning of the creed of America. He understood that America was a land where people could achieve, where people could obtain capital and accumulate capital and become independent and sovereign individuals and sovereign families, not wards of the state. The cynical, negative view that eventually permeated the movement, not in his day, but later, was something that I would argue, on the whole, has been detrimental to the interests of minorities. It has placed minorities in a perpetual state of fear and dependency, and uh, it has created a pall upon minorities who have succeeded, and many of them had succeeded long before the Jim Crow. They had succeeded because of their own abilities, their own wits, their own understanding that because they were minorities and because racism is a part of this country, unfortunately, they would have to do better. They would have to do better than white folk because they were at a disadvantage. There's no question about that. And by the way, we should point out very, very clearly that there are just as many racists on the left as there are on the right. There are just as many people who are not racist on the left as there are on the right. The left likes to wrap itself in the cloak of uh, opposing racism. Of course, what is not usually mentioned, because it's not polite, is that they do so, at least here in Boston, usually from lily-white suburbs with their children in lily-white schools, and they pontificate as they pontificate from on high. Uh, People might remember the Commonwealth Day School scandal back in the 1980s when Cambridge liberals like Lawrence, like Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard, and even I think Julia Child was in on that one. They signed a petition <clears throat> to keep out a school, a common, the Commonwealth Day School, from the Brattle Street neighborhood, which is made up of the most liberal lily white types, because they didn't know, they didn't want it to be disturbing their little community over there, and mainly because there might have been some black children going to that school. So I guess that you might say, and again, I'm using that simply as an anecdote anecdote to a bigger question, that, uh, you know, this kind of hypocrisy, I mean, Chris Matthews is obsessed with race. His entire work this whole last year was trying to tar anybody who disagreed with Barack Obama as a racist, yet he doesn't have any black people on his staff. His children go to an all-white school. He doesn't give money to any causes that would help black people, doesn't know any black people. Uh, you know, I'm just pointing this out because of the hypocrisy of it. 
and the cynicism of it and the negativity of it, but yet it's been effective for the, for the left. It really has. They have been able to marshal their base by mutual hatred for anybody who doesn't agree with them, and they have been able to play up to fears and conspiracy beliefs amongst African Americans by, by appealing to their emotions. You know, the, you know the, the conservative people have something against you because they don't want to, because they're trying to stop voter fraud, right? This is really nothing more than a conspiracy to stop black people from voting, as if somehow black people are not capable of registering to vote, just like white people. You know, this is a shock to a lot of liberals, believe me. But that's how they see it. You know, their view is a negative view. It's a negative view of this country. They don't believe that this country can, you know, they accuse conservatives, for example, of being against immigrants. Conservatives aren't against immigrants. They're not against, they're not in favor of shutting the door to immigrants. They, they want immigrants. What they're against and what is covered up in that vicious charge is the fact that conservatives oppose the idea of bringing immigrants into the country who are going to be on the dole, who are going to become dependents of the state, who are going to suck money out of the taxpayers' pockets. I mean, the, the conservative image of, of, of immigrants is that we want to welcome them into this country because they're going to help us get richer, not poorer, because they're going to help create capital. They're going to lead productive lives. They're going to make a life for themselves. They're going to experience the American dream. They're going to accumulate capital. They're going to have successful, sovereign families. That was the immigrant experience in America in the turn of the century. That's what the waves of immigrants did as they started coming into this country in the 19th century, starting with the Irish and the Germans and later the Jews and the Italians and the French. And, uh, and all of the other ethnic groups, and that's what even modern ethnic groups have done, like the Vietnamese, like basically like the Hispanics, most of them. They've come here and they've created a better life. They've contributed to the wealth of this country. They've made us richer. But yet they point a finger at conservatives as saying, well, they're against immigration or illegal immigration, when in fact what they're against is this left-wing agenda where they meet people at the border, organizations like the ACLU and the, the, the National Lawyers Guild, which is a, an arm of the American Communist Party, they meet people at the border and they tell them how to get on public, public assistance, not create wealth, not create sovereignty, not live the American dream, but how to figure out how to scam the system, how to figure out how to get paid for not working. I don't blame the immigrant for taking advantage of it, by the way. I mean, I don't think it's right, but the real blame for that goes with the liberal administrators, those who are screaming about racism, while they've created a, a, a permanent underclass of people who they can manipulate with emotion and who can serve their ends by basically voting them into office and increasing their political power. How cynical. What a negative view of America that is. Don't they think this country can do better? Don't they think that we can continue to grow, to create capital, to become richer, to become more creative? Or do they think that our days are over here? Do they think we're regressing backward, which is what the Obama administration is all about? 
I would contend the latter is where they are. That's what I would contend. Okay, we are joined by Dr. Alveda King. Uh, Dr. King, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Well, Craig, I can only stay with you for five minutes. Please forgive me. Well, that's quite all right. I'd like to maybe do something more extensive in the future when your schedule's free. I would imagine you're quite busy. Briefly, Dr. King, I'd like you to just tell our audience about yourself. Well, I am the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and uh, my daddy, Reverend A.D. King, his brother, and uh, I'm the founder of King for America, a faith-based organization, and director of African American Outreach for Priest for Lives. Well, you know, you come from a very, very celebrated American family, and um, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Can you briefly tell us, my, my impression, one of my impressions about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., was that his ministry and his message and his movement uh, in, in terms of achieving civil rights for African Americans was animated by his Christian faith. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. He was a Christian preacher, a Baptist preacher. He and my father were both preachers, and uh, you can actually read about their histories. They were often called the Sons of Thunder, after John and, and uh, James and John in the Bible. And so Martin Luther King Jr., one of his, my favorite sermons from my uncle was Rediscovering Lost Values. And uh, you know that President Obama is being sworn in with President Lincoln's Bible and my uncle ML's Bible. And I'm saying that I'm hoping that everyone who handles those Bibles, including the president, will open them and not just let it be ceremony, but read them and begin to try to do some of the things that God is asking us to do. And the Reverend King often spoke about his belief that he was on a mission and that there was an ordained nature of that mission, that he felt that he was fulfilling uh, what God wanted him to do on earth. Isn't that right? That is so true. And my family right now has a new book out. Uh, it's called Martin Luther King Jr., A King Family Tribute. And we look at the origins of Dr. King and the King Williams legacy, which is five generations of people who were anointed and called to serve the Lord, with my uncle, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., being the most famous. Was uh, Martin Luther King a registered Republican? Well, at one point, maybe so. I'm not sure. And that's a discussion I really generally don't entertain anymore because. The politics kind of hinders people from having goodwill towards each other and accomplishing many of the things that the Lord wants us to accomplish. So a lot of times I say, you know, if he were here today, he would be more like uh, Dr. Billy Graham and people like that who just pray for everybody in authority regardless to what their political persuasions are. So I'm beginning to uh, not – I I don't think that – yeah, the political thing is not as – urgent for me anymore as the spiritual part of it. Now, with the unfortunate murder of Dr. King, the, the assassination in 1968, um, it seems to me that the uh, the religious element, the spiritual element of the civil rights movement took a major blow, and since then it's become much more of a secular movement uh, with, with the advent of big government programs and whatnot. Would you say that were true? I believe it is true, and I think we have come away too much from the spirit into the concerns of the world. And that's why I say one of my uncle's best sermons, Rediscovering Lost Values again, um, going back to those Bible values, and it's not going to be 
tolerance or pride or gun control that will really help people, but it's agape love, it's humility, uh, it's men and women serving God and, and loving and serving each other. Those are the things that we have to get back to. And, you know, we have Martin Luther King Jr. Day on the 21st of January. We have the inauguration on the 21st. And then later in the week, the uh, Right to Life, the March for Life in Washington, D.C. And so I try to pull all of those things together and say that we need to combat racism, reproductive genocide, sexual immorality, and all of those things that keep us from clearly obeying and serving God and loving each other. And the Reverend King, of course, was very much a champion of life. And that's something that's de-emphasized today, and I don't think that President Obama is probably going to mention that. He probably won't, and I'm just going to be praying that there be people that will begin to cry out to God and write President Obama letters about that and, and just say, we need to hear from those things that mean so much to all people, those timeless things that are in those two Bibles, Lincoln's Bible and King's Bible. And I think that... You know, people need to let the president know that. Dr. Alveda King, where can people get this book? It's just out there on the Internet, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, places like that, but it is available. And you can reach me at www.africanamericanoutreach.com. Well, Dr. Alveda King, I hope we can do a more extensive interview in the future. I know you're very, very busy right now, so I want to thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Well, thank you, and God bless you and your listening audience. Thank you so much. Thank you, and God bless you. Okay, we shall return after these brief messages. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Please stay tuned. is the number if you'd like to join us 347-327-9849 I'd like to again thank Dr. Alveda King for joining me briefly uh, niece of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, we will uh, hopefully be having her back very soon um, to, uh, to do something more extensive obviously she's um, you know she's pretty busy right now I mean this is uh you know, leading up to a, a big, the big day for to, to honor Reverend King. Um, I should bring this up reluctantly, but I shall bring it up nevertheless, and that is that I wrote an article many, many years ago uh, that was published um, in, in various sites, and um, let me just see here, um, that uh, question basically brought up 
um, the uh, the Reverend Dr. Lu- Martin Luther King's uh, communist connections. Now, I do not say that uh, Martin Luther King was a communist. I do not believe he was. But I think that um, perhaps earlier on in his career, he used the communist movement to help him advance his cause. Um, in my opinion, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King realized early on that for him to reach the sort of stature, for him to reach the audience that he was trying to reach, and I don't, I don't uh, quibble with his goal of doing that. Um, he wanted to help his people. He wanted to reach the mountaintop and look at the other side. But in order to do that, in order to break out of simply being a local minister with a following, in order to become a national figure, in order to become an international figure uh, that would be hailed and revered and lauded by the uh, media, by the establishment, he had to turn left. Otherwise, he would not have made it. And I think that one of the – and I think in order to do that, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he made a pact with the devil. I don't think that that's true. I think that, uh, you know, he probably had many of those same tendencies himself. But um, he he genuflected enough to the left to – and he de-emphasized enough his his religious faith and that of his family and that of his tradition – to get the kind of attention he got, but unfortunately he took it one step further and he did play footsie with communists. That is a fact of history. I'm not bringing this up again to criticize Dr. King. I admire Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King immensely. He gave his life for his cause. He spoke eloquently. He led a nonviolent movement at a time when, when the movement could have become violent because there were a lot more radical people around uh, than than Martin Luther King. I mean, there were people like Malcolm X, who was calling for a violent revolution. There were radicals on the much further to the left than than King as well. People like Bayard Rustin and Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown, and uh, you know the Black Panthers. I think they came a little bit later, but these were people who were who were engaging in outright violence. Martin Luther King did embrace the Gandhian principle which was moral resistance, you know, peaceful resistance, you know, uh, non-compliance, civil disobedience. And that is a great tradition. That's something that uh, he deserves enormous credit for. And I think that that, more than anything, is what elevated Dr. Martin Luther King to the rightful place that he holds in American life. I mean, he did, you know, there are figures in history who make a difference, who change the nature of history. We can point to them throughout history. Napoleon, uh, Jesus, Moses, you know, Martin Luther, the original Martin Luther. I mean, there are a lot of people. George Washington, Mar- uh, Abraham Lincoln. You know, these are people. Whitaker Chambers. I mean, these are people who change the course of history. And I believe that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was absolutely one of those people because he used his position once he obtained it to oppose violence and to support nonviolent change, and that's what happened. We could have been engulfed in a violent revolution in this country had it not been for the leadership of Martin Luther King. 
I don't question that at all. I think that individuals can have a huge impact on history, especially when they reach points, uh, positions of prominence. But nevertheless, back in 2011, when I wrote this article, 2013, I decided to take a look at whether or not the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a communist. And uh, I did so in a way to dispel comments that were being made on the right that he was. Um, but at the same time, I incorporated in the article um, the fact that he did have some communist connections. So I think I'm just going to read the article. And, you know, I was reluctant to even post this article. And there was a while where I tried to sort of, I wouldn't say suppress it, but I didn't really want it to be, to be known. I was worried about it frankly, when I ran for Congress, and I thought it might come out. I'm surprised Barney Frank didn't get a hold of this one. But nevertheless, here it is. And since it was written so long ago, I have decided to embrace it. And uh, I'm going to read it. Um, it's posted today both on my blog site, which is Chuck Moore Speaks, and also on the Free Republic website it's posted. Um, was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. a communist? This writer does not question that the late, great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was deservedly one of the most monumental and pivotal figures of the 20th century. King's inspirational leadership, oratory, and profession of nonviolence may have very well saved this nation from a race war. I am grateful that the Reverend Dr. King emerged as the most visible and influential leader of the civil rights movement as opposed to an advocate of violence such as Malcolm X or a radical communist. No, the Reverend Dr. King was not a communist. However, he did business with communists and was influenced by them. While this is a delicate subject to breach, to broach, especially given the martyrdom and lionization of Dr. King to virtual sainthood, the subject must nevertheless be broached for a better understanding of some of the darker forces that infiltrated and sabotaged the originally pro-American, conservative, and Christian civil rights movement. Martin Luther King surrounded himself with communists from the beginning of his career. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, formed in 1957 and led by Dr. King, also had as its vice president Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who was at the same time president of the Southern Conference Education Fund, SCEF, as ident an identified communist front, according to the Legislative Committee on Un-American Activities in Louisiana. The report was published April 13, 1964, page 31 through 38. The field director of SCEF was Carl Braden, a known communist agitator who also sponsored the Fair Play for Cuba Committee which counted as a member Lee Harvey Oswald, the communist assassin of President Kennedy. Dr. King maintained correspondence with Carl Braden. Also on the board of SCLC was Bayard Rustin, a known communist. In 1957, Dr. King addressed the Highlander Folk School in Monteagle, Tennessee, which was originally called Commonwealth College until it was cited by the House Committee on Un-American Activities as being a communist front, April 27, 1949. The committee found that Commonwealth and later the Highland Folk School was using religion as a way to infiltrate the African-American community by, among other techniques, 
comparing the texts of the New Testament to those of Karl Marx. Dr. King knew many of the known communists associated with the Highland School. In 1960, Dr. King hired Hunter Pitts Odell, a communist official, to work at SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. According to the St. Louis Globe Democrat, October 26, 1962, quote, a communist has infiltrated the top administrative post in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's SCLC. He is Jack H. Odell, acting executive director of conference activities in the southeastern states, including Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, unquote. Dr. King fired Odell when this information emerged, but rehired him as head of the SCLC New York office. In other words, he shuffled him around. Dr. King was praised by communists and promoted by fellow travelers. Communist official Benjamin J. Davis of the New Worker, November 10, 1963, described Dr. King as, quote, a brilliant and practical leader who articulates the philosophy of the Negro people for direct nonviolent mass action, unquote. The Worker article goes on to describe Dr. King as, quote, the foremost advocate of the solution to social problems through nonviolent methods of mass action, unquote. Now, I just want to comment on that briefly. That doesn't necessarily mean that, um, yeah, yeah, that they were working with King or that they knew him. It just, it, it has more. It might have more to do with the fact that the communist movement wanted to maybe take credit and latch on to the work of Dr. King, and maybe take, uh, you know, try to reach him. So I don't, I don't read into that too much. The fact that the Communist Party was endorsing him. Back to the article. In his own words, Martin Luther King expressed a communist outlook in his book, quote, Strive Toward Freedom. He stated that in spite of the shortcomings of his analysis, Marx had raised some basic questions. I was deeply concerned from my early teen days about the gulf between superfluous wealth and abject poverty. In my reading of Marx, my reading of Marx made me even more conscious of this gulf. Although modern American capitalism has greatly reduced the gap through social reforms, there was still need for a better distribution of wealth. Moreover, Marx had revealed the danger of the profit motive as the sole basis of an economic system, unquote. Okay, so that, that shows that maybe um, King was, uh, you know, had embraced some communist, some Marxist ideas. Okay, moving along. It strikes me as sad that Dr. King, the most influential leader of the civil rights movement, wasn't an advocate of the capitalism that was already leading to such great economic strides among African Americans in his day. By advocating a better distribution of wealth, he meant state control over the economy. He sneered at the profit motive without explaining why African Americans shouldn't seek to profit to the best of their ability. These ideas would later on open the floodgates to radical African-American leaders such as Stokely Carmichael, H. Rapp Brown, the Black Panthers, and the burning and looting of African-American neighborhoods, the institutionalizing of welfare programs, the perpetration of poverty, the destruction of the African-American family, drugs, violence, racism, and crime. In Stride Toward Freedom, Dr. King states, quote, 
In short, I read Marx as I read all of the influential historical thinkers from a dialectical point of view, combining a partial yea and a partial no. My readings of Marx convince me that truth is found neither in Marxism nor in traditional capitalism. Each represents a partial truth. Historically, capitalism failed to see truth in collective enterprise, and Marxism failed to see truth in individual enterprise. The kingdom of God is neither the thesis of individual enterprise nor the antithesis of collective enterprise, but a synthesis which reconciles the truths of both. I guess what that tells me is that that Martin Luther King was was what we might call a third wayer, you know, the middle road. You know, he um, he was critical of both, and it's a complete. Unfortunately, I mean, we could criticize, we could look back, but he really misunderstood the nature of capitalism, which basically is such that people do oper- operate collectively, but they do so as private citizens, getting together for a common cause. You know, working together to accomplish something that's bigger than what can be done by any one or even a few individuals. That's what corporations are. They're collectives, but they're but they exist as a private entity. You don't need the government. Socialism, on the other hand, is the opposite. It forces collectivism, public ownership. So he didn't grasp that. That's fine. A lot of people don't. All right, moving along here. By stating that his, he views things from a dialectical point of view, <clears throat> Dr. King is thinking like communists, such as Marx, Lenin, and Stalin. The dialectic always and can only lead to authoritarianism. Man cannot, for example, be half free and half slave. <clears throat> Either he is free or he is a slave. And by the way, that is something that Abraham Lincoln understood when he said that a house divided cannot stand. You can't have a nation that's half free and half slave. Dr. King's imperious stand toward his own people would stand in contrast to an advocacy of genuine freedom, the development of self-rule, self-sufficiency, private ownership, and the accumulation of capital resulting from achievement. Dr. King was not at, from achievement. Dr. King was not advocating the American system of free market capitalism. Instead, he stood for a system that has stunted the growth of African Americans as well as the rest of us. Now, I think that I'm being a little harsh there because I don't think that that's entirely true. I think a lot of that came later. Much remains to be said regarding the communist infiltration of the civil rights movement as a whole. The communists sought to use African Americans as cannon fodder for their revolution by stoking hatred and racial division Much blood and suffering is on the hands of those communist agitators. The story of how the left-wing, predominantly white establishment promoted communists in the African-American community as a means of continuing an informal system of oppression also cries out to be told. So that's, that's my article posted today on both my blog, which is Chuck Moore Speaks, and also um, up on the the um, Free Republic uh, blog, um, and uh, you know it's 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 interesting. Let me just see if anybody made comments on Free Republic. Sometimes those things can be a little a little iffy. Here's a quote. Uh, this is from Venturer. 
I am sure that if Dr. King could come back and see all of the streets named after him, he would be proud that his name serves as a warning to all that the neighborhood these streets are in are the most dangerous places in any city. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Lionized virtual sainthood? They might as well rename the day St. Marty's Day. That's from Ventura. Um, this is, um, let's see, to Chuck Morse. All right. The Reverend Dr. Marxist Luther King Jr. certainly expressed his vile contempt for Ronald Reagan, a true freedom fighter and foe of communism. Quote, when a Hollywood performer, lacking distinction even as an actor, can become a leading Warhawk candidate for the presidency, only the irrationalities induced by war psychosis can explain such a turn of events. That tells me all I need to know about this manufactured fraud. But, 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 MLK was a Republican, so what? Socialists such as George Norris, Bob LaFollette, and more recently, Olympia Snow, also had the meaningless R next to their names. Moreover, the last public act by King was in support of a government labor union. He certainly wasn't leading the campaign for civil rights in Memphis back in April of 1968. Instead, he was defending the tyranny of unionism and big labor bosses. Republican, maybe. Conservative, no. Eventually, this is from um, getting these emails, Ken MCG. Eventually, the FBI will release his file. He was a philanderer, socialist, Marxist, communist sympathizer. Okay, this is from, um, let's see. Who is this from? Oh, uh, Lewis Foxwell. All right. Yes, sadly true. I was a student at BUST in the early 60s. The theology department, that's Boston University, I believe. The theology department was the same as it was under Dr. King. It was progressive by the late 40s. There was no question but that King's Christianity was social gospel, not orthodox biblical. And this is a country bob he has here he sent me a picture of this was put up there was posters that were put up that showed this it showed martin luther king at a communist training school um it's it, the article is uh, let's see yeah, i'm going to skip over that um and finally we have an email here from uh, texas republic i was around back then and i remember watching the mobs being agitated on tv my dad was adamant that king was a communist and predicted somebody was going to get him. Ugh, that's too bad. You know, the, the um, again, I mean, maybe he was, I mean, I, he was part of that uh, Highlander school in the beginning, but uh, I think that he came around, you know, as as he went. I mean, that's, that's my opinion. Now, the, um, the speech that Martin Luther King delivered the night before his murder in Memphis, Tennessee, I've been to the mountaintop, is one of the greatest pieces of, of public utterance ever written. Uh, it's like a sermon on the mount, in my opinion. And talk about religious. Maybe he was, I don't know if he was into a uh, you know, Marxist reinterpretation of religion, you know, sort of the, the Fabian approach, which is to take, leave the words in place but change their meaning. I don't doubt that he was, but nevertheless, his speech was spoken 
and can be seen by those who, uh, like myself, who are who are believers and who are traditional, uh, and, and it can be taken at that value and, and incorporated in that way. Um, and uh, by the way, there is a YouTube video of Martin Luther King delivering this speech where they chop up, I don't know, there's this new process. My daughter is into this. They they, 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 they do something to the voice, and they, they it's treated electronically, and um, it sounds different. It's kind of a newer sound. And, um, you know, when I first heard it, I thought it was disrespectful. But now I think it's great because it's bringing young people, like my daughter, age 14, uh, into an appreciation of Reverend King. She listens to that and knows how to recite that speech by heart. And I, to me, to my way of thinking, that's a great thing. Uh, I also asked her if she would listen with me to the actual speech, which was also available on YouTube. And she did that, and she loved that too. So it's not uh, just that she thought it was great, and she's come to admire Reverend King. And by the way, my daughter mentioned to me that one of the reasons she admires Reverend King besides his civil rights work, besides the fact that he was a Republican and that he was a Christian minister, was that he was a Zionist. He was pro-Israel. And um, actually, King is on record as having stated that uh, anti-Zionism is nothing more than anti-Semitism in drag. Uh, oh, I don't know if he said in drag, but in, you know, in disguise. And uh, on that point, he was absolutely right. Uh, so, you know, that has to be admired. Yeah, I think that as we reach the end of this segment, as we remember and honor the life and legacy of Martin Luther King with all of his faults, and yes, with his communist connections, and yes, with his personal life, which was apparently fairly sordid, nevertheless, as a public figure, he stood for peace, he stood for nonviolence, and that made the, that made the difference. You know, that's what makes him a pivotal figure. And he gave his life. You know, he was murdered. Um, so I'm going to read just the final piece here. Um, wait a minute, is this it? Okay. This is uh, at the end, the end of the speech, but, uh, to, which he delivered in Memphis the night before his murder. And they were telling me, now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane there, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay, but we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked, and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully, and we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis, and some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out or what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, 
I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Amen. And thus, Martin Luther King was quoting, obviously, from Moses, who went to the mountaintop, and he looked over into the promised land, but he knew that he could not go there with the people of the children of Israel. Talk about biblical references. I wonder if the left would want to censor that out of the conversation. After all, that was one of the most political speeches ever delivered. But, um, but there it is. You know, I mean, to, to my way of thinking, that is inspirational to all people. That is a cry for freedom, for equal rights under the law. King wasn't asking for a handout. He wasn't asking to be treated like a child. He wasn't asking for, you know, multiculturalism. He's asking to be an American. He understood the true meaning of the creed of this country. You know, he understood that questions such as ethnic background and racial background and religious background and whatnot, that these things are, we are free to associate or not associate ourselves with these things, but that they don't make up the sum total of our identity. America does. We're Americans. We've been through the fire. Anyways, so that's that's the Reverend King's great speech. Speaking of great speeches, um, you should read this. I mean, my, my daughter's actually doing this in her school. She's declaiming it. Um, this was his sentencing of the shoe bomber. He, it, right here in Boston Federal Court, it's an amazing Sentencing of the Shoe Bomber, Richard Reed, Judge Young and the Shoe Bomber. Check it out. Go go to, uh, let me see if I can look up the speech. Um, shoe Bomber lesson. Sentence, New York Times. Judge Young and the Shoe Bomber. Uh, let me just put in the speech. Let's see if I can get that. It's really something. I mean, Sentencing of the Shoe Bomber, remarks by... Judge Judge Young. Here we go. He, um, you know, so Schubomber obviously he tried to blow up a plane, you know, from his religious background. <clears throat> U.S. District Court Judge William Young made the following statement in sentencing Schubomber Richard Reed to prison. It says, um, and I'll get to the good part here. Let me just, oh, here it is. We'll go right to the speech. The court accepts the government's recommendation with respect to restitution and orders. This is a sentence that is provided for by our statutes. 
It is a fair and just sentence. It is a righteous sentence. Let me explain this to you. We are not afraid of any of your terrorist co-conspirators, Mr. Reed. We are Americans. We have been through the fire before. There is all too much war talk here, and I say that to everyone with the utmost respect. Here in this court, where we deal with individuals as individuals and care for individuals as individuals, as human beings we reach out for justice. You are not an enemy combatant. You are a terrorist. You are not a soldier in any war. You are a terrorist. To give you that reference, to call you a soldier, gives you far too much stature. Whether it is the officers of government who do it, or your attorney who does it, or that happens to be your view, you are a terrorist. And we do not negotiate with terrorists. We do not treat with terrorists. We do not sign documents with terrorists. We hunt them down one by one and bring them to justice. So war talk is way out of line in this court. You are a big fellow, but you are not that big. You're no warrior. I know warriors. You are a terrorist, a species of criminal guilty of multiple attempted murders. In a very real sense, Trooper Santiago had it right. When you first were taken off that plane and into custody, and you wondered where the press and where the TV crews were, and he said, you're no big deal, you're no big deal. What your counsel, what your able counsel, and what the equally able United States attorneys have grappled with, and what I have, as honestly as I know how, tried to grapple with, is why you did something so horrific. What was it that led you here to this courtroom today? I have listened respectfully to what you have to say. And I ask you to search your heart and ask yourself, what sort of unfathomable hate led you to do what you are guilty and admit you are guilty of doing? And I have an answer for you. It may not satisfy you, but as I search the entire record, it comes as close to understanding as I know. It seems to me you hate the one thing that is most precious. You hate our freedom, our individual freedom, our individual freedom to live as we choose, to come and go as we choose, to believe or not believe as we individually choose. Here in this society, the very winds carry freedom. They carry it everywhere from sea to shining sea. It is because we prize individual freedom so much that you are here in this beautiful courtroom so that everyone can see, truly see, that justice is administered fairly, individually, and discreetly. It is for freedom's sake that your lawyers are striving so vigorously on your behalf and have filed appeals. We'll go on in there, their representation of you before other judges. We are about it, because we all know that the way we treat you, Mr. Reed, is a measure of our own liberties. Make no mistake, though, it is yet true that we will bear any burden, pay any price to preserve our freedoms. Look around this courtroom, mark it well. The world is not going to long remember what you or I say here. 
Day after tomorrow, it will be forgotten. But this, as he points to the American flag, however, will long endure. Here in this courtroom and in courtrooms all across America, the American people will gather to see that justice, individual justice, justice, not war, individual justice is in fact being done. The very President of the United States, through his offices, will have to come into courtrooms and lay out evidence on which specific matters can be judged, and juries of citizens will gather to sit and judge that evidence democratically, to mold and shape and refine our sense of justice. See that flag, Mr. Reed? That's the flag of the United States of America. That flag will fly there long after this is all forgotten. That flag stands for freedom. You know it always will. Custody, Mr. Officer, stand him down. So there you have it, Judge William Young, right here in Boston. The sentencing of, of Reed, the, the shoe bomber. What a great speech that is. I'm really proud of my daughter who is delivering it as her oration at school. In fact, um, we might even arrange for her to do it to Judge Young, who uh, here, is here in Boston at the federal court. Anyways, I want to thank Dr. Alveda King for joining me this afternoon, the niece of the late great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I'm proud to honor Dr. King this Monday um, for the King holiday. I, by the way, will be off Monday, um, so we'll be doing our best stuff. Maybe this program would be a good one to run. And I should mention, in the interest of uh, promotion here, that my book, <clears throat> The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in a Post-Traditional Age is now available as a Amazon Kindle. So check it out. It's on Amazon Kindle. And um, you can check out my blog site, of course, which is Chuck Moore Speaks. And uh, on that note, I want to thank you all for joining me uh, this afternoon. And I wish you a pleasant weekend. Have a good afternoon, everybody.